This is a re-recording of Leviticus in 20 minutes, as it didn't record properly the first time. Here lies Leviticus, graveyard of Bible in a year, quote fodder for militant atheists. It's like that extra piece of flat-packed furniture that just doesn't seem to quite fit in, and no one's quite sure what to do with when you get to the end. But here it is, slap bang in the centre of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Leviticus is the first book, actually, that Jewish children learn about in their religious education. It's also home to possibly the most known commandment, well-known commandment in the Bible, love your neighbour. There's a temptation to think, though, that the rest of the book is wholly irrelevant. Interestingly, for historical reading, uh, interesting to, to look at its history, but nothing to do with what we believe or how we live now. But Leviticus does matter. Why does it matter? Well, firstly, because all scripture is breathed out by God and useful. Not just the easy bits. Actually, all of it was given to build us up and make us wise for salvation and for growth. We cannot make Leviticus the one exception to that rule. Secondly, though, because Leviticus is being used against Christians. I've met non-believers who know more quotes from Leviticus than most believers do. They quote Leviticus and some of its laws to shock and belittle Christians. You believe the Bible? Well, look at some of these ridiculous laws about fabrics and haircuts. Look at some of these bigoted laws. Who says God can't, uh, who who says that we can sleep with this person or that person or, or whatever? How do we respond? Well, it's hard, isn't it, if we haven't got our head around the book. So we're to look at this book because it's scripture, and to look at this book because it's being used against us, but also we need to look at this book because we need a bigger vision of the holiness of God and the greatness of the cross. That is ultimately what this book does. We know that God is holy, don't we? But this book shows us just how holy, just how unapproachable he is. But it also shows us the amazing greatness of the cross. When we see how immense and complicated and compounded our predicament as sinful human beings is, when we see the incredible power and effectiveness of the cross, we see that that overcomes it. We are under layer after layer after layer of sin and uncleanness, according to Leviticus. And yet the cross does away with it absolutely and completely. But to start with, we have to get it in context. So what is the book all about? Well, here we go. Firstly, how can we enter God's presence? How can we enter God's presence? The book is about how we can return to Eden. The book of Exodus finished with the tabernacle being complete. Really, in a way, the tabernacle was a portable Eden, a way into God's presence. The glory of the Lord descends on it as a cloud. Eden is here again. God is dwelling with his people. And Moses can't go in. He can't get through the cloud that's gone over the uh, tabernacle. He has built a place for God, a tabernacle for God to live in, so to speak. But it isn't really a tent of meeting at this point because he can't meet with God. The cloud is stopping him. So Exodus really finishes on a cliffhanger. After all this preparation, after all these instructions, can we get back to Eden? If Moses can't even get in, what chance do normal people stand? Well, Leviticus was written to answer that question. How can we get back into Eden? 
which is a bigger question than you might think. Because looking forward to the end of the Bible, the final destination is Eden. That's how the Bible finishes, God with his people in a new Eden. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we get back to Eden? How do we spend eternity with God in the wonderful rest that we see at the beginning, only better? What's the answer? Well, that's what Leviticus is here to show us. And it works like a giant sandwich or a great mountain with two sides. And we'll work our way up from both sides towards the centre. So firstly, we see to get back to Eden, it will require sacrifice. There are five distinct sacrifices given in the opening chapters. Let me tell you a story to help you understand a bit what those sacrifices do and what they're about. There was once a man who lived near the estate of a great lord. He and the lord are friends. The man is out walking one day and accidentally trespasses on the lord's land. But it gets worse. While he's on the lord's land, he falls over on a pile of lettuces, ruining them. And as he falls over, he gets covered in manure in the process. Now you see, the man has several problems. He has trespassed on the Lord's land, and that's against the law. He has damaged the Lord's property. The lettuces that belong to him are ruined. He's made himself filthy. He stinks, and a stench now follows him round. The great Lord will not meet with him now, so he's broken fellowship with the Lord too. The Lord doubts really whether he is a loyal subject at all anymore after he hears what has happened. So the five sacrifices are to deal with those five different problems. If you want a bit more on this, go back and listen to some of the talks on Leviticus we did uh, before lockdown. But Jesus deals with these problems by sacrifice. He is the ultimate burnt offering that deals with sin. So Ephesians 5 verse 2 And walk in love, as the Lord loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Not the language used of the Passover lamb, it's the language used of a burnt offering. The burnt offering was consumed by the fire as as we would be consumed by God's wrath. So his death, Christ's death, takes God's wrath. He was consumed so that we don't have to be. Not just for unintentional sins, but for all sins, offering forgiveness for what even the law of Moses could not. He's also the ultimate guilt offering, that's another one that's mentioned in these chapters, paying the ransom for our guilt before God. The language of sacrifice that pays comes from this language of a a guilt offering. So when we talk about Jesus paying for our sin, it's really the language of the guilt offering. He's the purification offering that cleans us up and takes away that stench. His blood covers our sins. His precious flow cleanses us. He's a tribute offering. This was the idea of offering something to our wonderful king. The gift of life and death wholly given in the king's service as a tribute to show your loyalty to the king. And he's the ultimate peace offering. A sacrifice we share in as the priests and the worshippers shared. They would eat together. And it restored fellowship between God and man, just as the fellowship was broken between the Lord and his servant. Well, here, it restores fellowship between God and man. Each sacrifice is there to give us a window on Jesus' perfect sacrifice. What's our role? 
Well, our role, first of all, is to accept that sacrifice that Jesus has made. To marvel at the kaleidoscope of images that we're given here. How God has carefully and thoughtfully and wonderfully unpicked all the problems that we face, all the mess that we've got ourselves into. And then in response also, we now become living sacrifices. And our sacrifice, our living sacrifice, will take on some of these features too. So it requires sacrifice, that's what we see from uh, the first chapters. It requires obedience to the covenant. It involves doing these sacrifices at God's appointed times. Festivals, Sabbaths, new moons. Either Leviticus picks up on Genesis or Genesis picks up on Leviticus. But the words used for lights in the sky given for times and seasons in Genesis is the same word used for the lamps that are set up in the tabernacle. The words times and seasons would also have been understood too that God was setting up the calendar for the people. He sets up the year. He sets up the week around the worship cycle that he expects. The length of cleanliness and uncleanness revolves around days and weeks and months. The passing of a day in Leviticus often has purifying power. So when the new day comes, you're clean again. His mercies are new every morning, as it puts it elsewhere in scripture. So God sets up the calendar, he sets up the system, and he requires obedience to this. The book ends with a challenge to keep the covenant and pronounces blessings and cursings on those who will and will not. The problem looking through Bible history is that more times than not, the people are disobeying rather than obeying. Even here in the wilderness where this is set, we have breakings out of God's anger at his people as they break the covenant. And yet the blessings sound just like an expansion of the promises to Abraham. Yet now these appear to have conditions. They must do things to unlock this blessing. Well, who can meet these conditions and unlock the blessings of the covenant? Well, you guessed it. Jesus, seed of Abraham, true Israel, true son of God. This is one of the reasons why Jesus could not just appear and die. You know what I mean? Because if it's it's death that's the all-important thing, then why did he have to live? Well, he had to live out the covenant. He had to fulfil the covenant. That he might be heir of the covenant and be able to pass it on to all who are in him. That means that Eden could be restored one day because the blessings of the covenant are unlocked by Christ. Jesus does it. So it requires obedience to the covenant, but actually that's fulfilled in Christ. It requires purified priests. We see that in chapters 7 to 10 and uh, 21 to 22. We tend to make a big deal of the sacrifices in Leviticus, but sacrifices in the book require priests. Actually, you couldn't just rock up and give your own sacrifice, you had to go through a priest. And there are specific instructions for them, for sacrifices and for rituals, but also for moral things about what they and their family can and can't do. The priests were held to a higher standard than the people in general. They had to fit the picture of a restored humanity re-entering Eden, which meant no deformities and the like. Leviticus includes the story of Nadab and Abihu, who do not follow the instructions and are consumed by fire from the altar. There are hints that more is going on than at first it seems, but what the priests do matter. A substandard priest will not do. Well again, what has that got to do with us? 
Well, we have a great high priest, a pure high priest without blemish or sin, one who did not require sacrifices to be made to cleanse him. So Hebrews 4 verses 14 to 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest that is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's the only one who really fits what this says, far superior to often openly sinful priests that the Israelites had through its history. So Jesus is our priest that we need, as is described in Leviticus. The next thing uh, we need to approach God is purity and cleanliness for the people. This is chapters 11 to 15 and 18 to 20. This is where we get those strange sections about clean and unclean animals and things that make people unclean. We get them on both sides of the hill, so to speak, as we go up towards the centre. Generally, deviations from the norm mean that something uh, mean that something doesn't fit into a category neatly as it should, means that it's unclean. As though these things wouldn't belong in Eden where there were neat categories. And on the other side of the, the mountain, so to speak, we get moral things that defile people. Things like we're told not to hate our brother from the heart. But we're also told other things about animals, people of the same gender and close relatives that we won't talk about with children in the room. One of the fascinating things is that they're all mixed up. People try and split the laws into neat categories, you know, moral, ceremonial and national. Now there could be some merit to that to get our heads around it, but they aren't arranged like that. And they don't always fit neatly into one category. So love your neighbour in chapter chapter 19 is followed by not mixing fabrics, for example. And that's all in the same section about laws about harvesting fields. So what can we do? How can we understand how they fit together? Well, partly it's that we need to know why the commands are being given. Was it a reaction against a religious practice of the Egyptians? Was it something inherent to being a human being? There are no shortcuts here, actually, as we look through the laws. It's a lifetime's work. Again, I'd refer you to the talk online from Leviticus that deals with these chapters for more details. One thing that is repeated throughout, though, is that they are to be different from the nations around them. They were God's people and they were to be set apart. And that's still the case. We still need to be holy and set apart as a people. So these things do still apply. It's how they apply that is important. All these laws need to be seen in the light of Christ's fulfilment of the law. For some, like the food laws... Uh, they'll change quite radically. Jesus declared all foods clean. So how does that law apply now? Well, we eat those things and rejoice in Christ. So when you're having a bacon sandwich, let it raise your thoughts to Christ, unless you're a vegetarian. In which case, rejoice in wearing wool and polyester and whatever you like to wear. And if you're a vegan, well, don't wear wool and don't eat bacon but rejoice in your freedom to choose what you eat and wear. Do you see how the application changes radically for us from what it was there in Leviticus? So it still stands, but the application is different. For laws like love your neighbour, there's not so much of a change. 
other than that Jesus intensifies it for believers so that now we're to love one another as he loved us, not just as ourselves. The section as a whole, though, highlights the problem, the big problem that we all have, that no one is this moral or clean. Even things like a woman's monthly visitor or a man's nighttime visitor, all normal things as human beings can make you unclean. Equally, if those things aren't functioning right in those areas, then that can make someone unclean too. It seems that just being human in this sinful world is enough to make you unclean. Well, what can sort that out? Well, lastly, the pinnacle of the book, the the top of the mountain, it involves atonement. This is there in chapters 16 and 17. This is the centre, the pinnacle of the book, the way the whole book is going towards. This atonement was, the day of atonement was the, the Jewish New Year, and the day when the sin and uncleanness of the people was dealt with. Also that they could approach God, Well, actually, so that one man could approach God and make atonement. And well, just for the year gone by, actually he'd need to go in again next year and repeat all these processes, all these sacrifices all over again. Because no sooner are they clean, than actually they go back to being unclean. So even this pinnacle of Leviticus, it provided a temporary solution to a lasting problem. It allowed someone to enter the centre of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the top of the mountain, the heavens, all of those things hidden by cloud in the Pentateuch. And on the Day of Atonement, a cloud of incense would hide the high priest as he approached the altar and brought the blood of the sacrifice in. So it was a temporary solution to a lasting problem. But when Christ came, he brought a lasting solution to the problem. Listen to this from Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, and then 24 to 26. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, the securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What it's saying there is Jesus has dealt with it all. These yearly sacrifices are a reminder of sin and a signpost to Christ. Because in the end, Leviticus is a book about Jesus. Because he is the only one who can bring us into God's presence. So let me just quote as we finish, uh, just a few verses later from Hebrews, to show us how Christ is better than what we see here. Hebrews 10, 19-23. Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, all of us draw near, if you like, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Praise the Lord for our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the way that Jesus fulfills all this. Father, help us as we look through this book later on in life, later on in the day perhaps. Father, help us to see Christ in its pages, our lasting solution to our big problem. We thank you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.